In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 5, verse 11. Today we take an unexpected turn in the early Christian community as we see the Christians united in heart and mind. They're living a radical life of generosity. They're sharing everything they have. But it begs the question, is this prescriptive for us today? Does God command us to live this way? We'll talk about it. But even back then, not everyone played by the rules. Enter Ananias and Sapphira. They're a couple who decided to hold back some of their cash while pretending to give it all. And when they're caught in their lie, the consequences are more severe than anyone could have imagined. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners who contribute to KFUO, just like you. But we're also grateful for a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF does important work in translating, making, and giving out Lutheran books and materials that stick close to the Bible, that focus on Jesus, and connect with the teachings of the Reformation. And the best part? LHF gives out these resources to pastors and missionaries and those who need them for free. So to know more about what LHF does, how you can join them and help support them in this important mission work, go over to their website at lhfmissions.org. But this morning, right now, you can do that later, join me in welcoming my guest. He's a regular contributor to the show, the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Boisclair, and welcome to our Acts Bible Study. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's such a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to share this precious word together with you and, and to the listeners. Well, as I've joked with some of the other uh, guests so far, you know, I just got so tired of stumbling over Hebrew words. I thought it would be a good idea to head into the New Testament for a while. And the book of Acts is one that I have to admit, I, I obviously have studied it, I've read it, I've even taught on it. But the type of deep dive that this show gives the opportunity for with fellow pastors, I've not had a chance to do that yet. So I'm really looking forward to how this study continues. Yeah, it's a, and it's a very intriguing book. It's, it's uh, so important for us to uh, uh, study this book because it shows us, you know, how the Lord set things up for us as, as uh, contemporary Christians uh, uh, from be, uh, the time of the first century. Absolutely. Well, before we get into anything, maybe we should begin our time together in prayer, and I'd like to invite you to lead us in that prayer. Let us pray. O gracious Spirit of grace and truth, we thank and praise you for inspiring the word of truth, your holy scriptures, that we may grow in our faith and our knowledge of you and, and of um, who we are in, in Christ and that you incorporate us into the church, and that uh, it is by your grace and power that, that uh, we live in the desire for unity of faith and, and being of one mind and of one spirit. And, and we pray that you would guide us as, as we see the adventure uh, unfolding before us in uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or are they your acts, dear Lord? in uh, bringing uh, people of God to faith and, and uh, 
through holy baptism and through the preaching of the gospel. And we ask you to guide us as we consider uh, the account of the um, story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira as, um, as a something to inspire our awe and, and, um, and reverence toward you and, and your actions in the church. Grant that we may treasure you uh, through as you come to us in the means of grace, that we may worship you with the Father and the Son as one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, we've only gotten a few chapters into the book of Acts, and, uh, you know, it's begun (laughs) auspiciously with Peter and John being arrested for healing a guy, for preaching about Jesus in Solomon's portico, and in the last chapter they were dragged before the council, but pretty much only got let off the hook because the people were so impressed by the sign that they had done, and, you know, the, the the people of the Sanhedrin or whoever was gathering to judge them, well, they weren't uh, they weren't too keen on upsetting the crowds. And so then while they're doing that, the believers are praying for boldness, and that's kind of what leads us into our text for today. Um, I want to go back just a little bit, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, etc. So they were praying. Uh, The whole place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. God was really moving through those people to understand their place in a society that had literally, within, within very recent memory, had just killed the, the, the one they followed, the one who gave them the new way of life. So I, I, it seems like the early church really was, from its get-go, uh, an us versus them, so to speak. It, it was the church, and then it was the unbelievers, the Gentiles and the peoples who are plotting in vain against the church. Um, I think that might help us understand why they started communing together a little bit, but what are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I think you're totally right about that. Um, it's interesting in, in look, in preparing this, uh, uh, one commentator, and of course this is one that it's from, uh, you know, from the past, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan and his commentary on acts talks about a transvaluation of, of reality and life uh, that, that occurs for the church. Uh, and I kind of like to see that in uh, the words of the apostle in Second Corinthians 5, where he says, from now on, we regard no one according to a worldly or according to the flesh, according to a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is co- come. All this is from God. And so in, in a, in, in what's going on is that uh, the, those who are being brought into the church through uh, the preaching of the gospel and by the power of God's spirit and, and, and holy baptism 
are are um, a different humanity, you might say, and 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 it, it, right in uh, in the holy city itself. But like as you said, it 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 becomes where where they are uh, opposed to those who are not in Christ, and and uh, it, it's it, it's a, a battle. And of course, as we'll see later in our particular text, it's a battle against Satan himself. Um, and this is kind of like where there's the parting of the ways, isn't it? between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, you know, in other words, on the following God him, himself, God the Son himself, we follow the true faith as it was begun at the time of Adam and Eve, and then through the, uh, the Yahwism, it was, it was called, or the people of God, the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And we are the uh, faithful followers of that God, that uh, revealed himself in the Old Testament, and those who rejected Christ become what is today known as Judaism. And so the early, the early Christians, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to face the world as they faced, because they really didn't have a, a home, a place. When we think about Christianity today, especially in the United States, I believe that we have held this position of honor for a very long time. For decades and decades and decades, Christians have been on top, so to speak. And in the last few decades, we've seen that rapidly erode right out from under us. And suddenly, I think once again, we find ourselves a people without a home. There are so-called Christians who don't stick to the Bible or proclaim Christ or administer the sacraments rightly. There are um, certainly unbelievers, and there are certainly other people of faith, other different faith traditions, but um, not to fall into the, you know, no true, you know, Scotsman fallacy. I do want to say, though, that those who are loyal to Jesus nowadays are kind of back in the, back in the, uh, I, I guess, in the minority, I guess would be a very easy way to say it. Once again, it's, it's kind of a us versus them. Now, not that the Lord wants us to think of it in those terms, but in terms of the reality that we have to face, I think we're back to being these disciples who, who found themselves without any place to go way back in the book of Acts. And, and, and it's also uh, true that God calls us to authenticity, to, to faithfulness to him. Uh, and and, and the, the warning, of course, is like in this text, uh, because here you have, you have uh, two folks that are uh, in, you know, they call themselves followers of Jesus, but they are hypocrites. Yeah, let's look at the first few verses here, because we're going to—I uh, think Ananias and Sapphira are certainly the, the stars, so to speak, of this narrative. But before we get their anti-type, we're going um, to get this idea of Joseph. We're going to get Joseph introduced, and, and he's going to demonstrate, I guess, uh, the ideal Christian during this time. All right, starting with verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said anything any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, uh, which means sons of encouragement, uh, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the end of verse 37. 
pausing there. This sounds like a cult. I'm just, you know, if we were, if you were watching a TV show or a movie today, the way in which this communal living has been, I guess, described in literature for a long time in popular media, you would think, well, anybody who's has people coming and the wealthy are all selling everything they have and giving to the foot of the leaders, I think that would be identified as a cult. Uh, why should we not see it that way? Or is that the right way to see it? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, there is a good uh, sense of the word cult uh, because it, in, in a sense, it's God's cult, you might say. It's God's manner of worship. Um, you know, we, it, it, I, I know it has a, has a negative connotation. Uh, but uh, this is, it, again, as the Apostle Paul said, it is not from a worldly point of view or a worldly motivation. The, these are people gathered in the Holy Spirit. They are gathered by the, uh, through the preaching of the gospel, the testimony of the resurrection of, of the disciples, uh, of the apostles specifically. And, and uh, what they do is, is simply uh, they see a need among their brothers and sisters in the faith, and, and they, and they uh, freely of their own will and uh, in, in common consent, uh, they decide to provide for those that are in need. There's a lot of poor there. And what's interesting is in the commentaries, they point out that this is very similar to um, what is said in Deuteronomy 15, that, uh, that they're uh, it, basically there, it says, but there will be no poor. This is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all these commandments that I command you. And then, of course, that, uh, you know, you should uh, help uh, your uh, brother Israelite who is in need. And so what we see in, in the Christian community here is, is what was desired among the Israelites at the time of Moses. Well, and there were lots of beggars. We've run into beggars time and again as we go through the scriptures. And in this culture, you know, beggars or being a beggar was something that a lot of people had to turn to. I mean, there wasn't an economy such that low-skilled people can find things to support themselves. And so to have a community where there were no beggars, no one in need, I think is is a tremendous, and it's certainly a, a good thing. Uh, in, some, in some ways, I think that—and by the way, going back to cult, you're right, the word cultist, of course, just means a system of religious belief. But I think a, a lot of people have shunned this idea because— they either want to push a particular economic model or they want to resist a particular failed economic model, and I understand that politically. But here, I think we continue to do this as a church because I would say, and correct me if you think I'm mistaken, when they say that they had everything in common, that no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, I don't think this necessitates that they just signed over every single thing they owned to the church and took vows of of poverty or shared just virtually from the community, I think it was more of an attitude of, even though I may be wealthy, I'm ready to stand in and help the less fortunate because they're my brother in Christ and we're equal before God. Not so much that, well, everybody's going to have the same amount in their bank account and the church is going to distribute as needed. 
but maybe I have that wrong. I don't know. How do you, how do you see it? I, I think you're completely right. Um, and, and the point being is that they, uh, you know, like it's interesting that there is a part of Karl Marx, the founder of communism, uh, his, his quote is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Uh, it does say each to each according to his need. So uh, Marx, uh, for, as his model of communism said after the struggle in which all of the people that believe in uh, uh, private property are put down the bourgeois or whatever, then, then uh, there won't be any need for government. And then, and then we will live in a communistic or communism. And so, and that, and then he was thinking of the, as the model, the early, this, this particular, uh, you know, situation as it's, uh, as it put forward in the book of Acts, he, he says from each according to his ability, but, but that is a political or a human uh, type of uh, political uh, system where, where people are compelled uh, they are, they become slaves to the state, which becomes God. And that is, so that's totally unlike what, 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 what's going on here, uh, where it is, the, it, they are impelled by the Holy Spirit uh, to do what they're doing. Well, I mean, you know, we have thir- verses 34 and 35 that actually explain what happened, right? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them in, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That is, when a need was presented, people would be willing and ready to sacrifice something of the gifts that God had given them to help out their neighbor. And, and you're right, this isn't prescribing a political economic uh, situation, you know, a, a model by which all nations should follow by God's command. It's a reflection of their faith. This isn't the first time we've seen it. Back in chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then, of course, day by day, they were in the temple. But I, I see that happening today. Like, perhaps if you're living in a, a community where your church has been around for 140 years, it might be a little hard to think about this. But imagine starting out a brand new congregation, whether it's a plant or, you, or you've just settled an area. I know it's hard to get our minds around this kind of idea. But what would be the first thing you do? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not helpful to the gospel or to the building of the church if no one is is sharing the wealth so instead we all come together and we and we build the church we we help the poor we have a we have a fundraiser for those who are in need we still do these things in the christian church and i think the fact that they do them anywhere else in our society is because of the christian church <laughs> you know this is an idea that everybody comes together to help each other i don't think you see from the natural human man I think from our fallen human nature, it's more about, I just got to survive and survival of the fittest. And I think that is why people are um, critical of, of things like capitalism, because they see it as, well, this is just a uh, you trying to get as rich as you can. And then people see communism as, well, the government's forcing me to help people. But the reality is th- there's room for both. You can have private possessions. You can make money. And you can put that money in service to the Lord. 
Yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting about a political system. I remember a Bible teacher saying that um, any uh, political system could possibly work. Capitalism could work. Socialism could work. Um, any any sort of um, uh, system, uh, you know, that humanity may devise might work. But the reason it, none of them work is because of sin. And and that's that's the reason why, um, you know, that, that they should understand that, uh, that that that's not the answer. And and uh, you have to remember what God's word teaches, that there is such a thing as private property. That's why you have the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not steal. There is uh, there there is God has said there is mine and thine. Uh, the the other thing is I, I wanted to share uh, with the listeners when I was uh uh, it was after I was in, I was in seminary, I think in my fourth year. And, and, and it was like during the summer when, when I was taking courses, then I, there was an older pastor that was there. I kind of thought he was a little bit progressive and maybe more liberal in his, uh, um, in his political views. But I, I said to him, the worst evil in the world is communism. And, and, and I was reflecting my, you know, my hatred of communism and, and my fear of communism. And he said, no, brother, he said, the worst fear, the worst evil in the world is selfishness. <laughs> and, and I think mm. he was so right uh, because, uh, you know, it, it, it's a manner in which we use what God has blessed us with. You know, th this is part of what stewardship is, you know, that that, uh, you know, it is God who has given us everything that we have. It's not ours to do with as we please. But if we are in Christ, that we will use uh, be, be good stewards of what he has given us. Yeah, you can be selfish in any economic system and any political system. You can you can use those the benefits of that system for good and you can decry the downfall and you but you it's really up to you how you live out uh, I guess um your life in the in the context that God has given you. So, if you do have everything in common for whatever reason as these early Christians did, then you have to do that in a way that's God-pleasing. If it's more individualistic or capitalistic, then that doesn't eliminate the opportunity to be merciful and to hold things in common with others and to uh, cling upon God's grace and to help out the less fortunate who are uh, laid at your feet. So, so we have all of these things that are that are. I think it, you're right. It really boils down to how do we respond uh, out of faith? How does our faith lead us to support those in need and to reach out for help and support when we're in need? Or does it cause us to be to be very selfish? I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good observation by that prof. And, and you know, it's it really interesting. I, I I like the idea too that people that are critical of others, um, you know, you you can be you can uh, be ungenerous not only in uh, in your in your material wealth or whatever in your good. The, possessions, but also in your thoughts, being ungenerous in your thoughts by, by being critical and, and, and uh, suspicious and hateful toward others. And, and, and uh, the, the way of the Spirit, of course, is that there be uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. And then the, the Spirit also unifies us. And, and that, that's so uh, precious here in this text. Well, and the and I think the the question continues to be begged, and that is, um, do we have a divine 
<laughs> law that says this is how we should live or this is the best way to live. And, and my knee-jerk response is this is the way in which the Holy Spirit led these Christians to live during their time for their purposes. Now, that's not the same as saying that the teachings of the Bible change from time to time, but certainly the, the environment in which people live changes from time to time. So what may have worked for first century Middle Eastern people who don't have an established you know, religious base to rely upon, it may very well mean they have to come together in, in, a, in, a, in a commune, so to speak. But for us in a different context, we still live out our lives within the, within the structure that we've been given, uh, but we do that faithfully. I think it just depends on where you're drawn. My point being, this is more descriptive than prescriptive, of course. I think you're absolutely right. And, and um, it, it, for, for instance, um, what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, um, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Uh, as is pointed out by many of our teachers, that that is not a general prescription that Christ gives to all his believers. Uh, but it is, it is something that's unique and special for that particular individual. And as you said, it, 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 the answer is, is this God's command to us uh, to do this? And, and absolutely not. This is, of course, the manner in which the Holy Spirit led his people uh, at that particular time. And uh, it, it is not, should not be imposed on anyone. But by the way, we are not under the law. We are under grace. So obviously, <laughs> it is not something that's imposed upon us by God. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to hold it right there as we take just a few minutes uh, for a break. But folks, don't go anywhere because uh, when we come back, Pastor Boyce Claire and I will finish up this first little section that we've been covering and then go into chapter 5. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. You know, Thy Strong Word is always within your reach. Well, almost always. If you're in St. Louis, of course, you can tune to AM850 on your radio. But for those who are outside that signal's reach, don't fret. You can subscribe to the show using your go-to podcasting app or and I really do think this is the best way, just download the KFUO radio app. It's compatible with iOS and Android devices, and you can listen wherever you'd like, live or on demand at kfuo.org. And if you want to chat or share some thoughts or you have some questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com 
or connecting with me on Facebook. I'm still over there. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. Just you and me, if you have any questions. But, Pastor, before uh, the break, we really just got to the point. We were having a nice conversation, I think, just about political and economic models and how these things relate to today. And I'm reminded of a quote, which is often attributed to uh, Churchill, which is about democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others, right? And <laughs> I, I see that here, too. You know, I have actually said that about Lutheranism, Derek, right? Like, well, how do you know you Lutherans are right? Well, Lutheranism is the, the, best, the best explanation of the Christian faith, or sorry, the worst explanation of the Christian faith, except for all the others. We always are tainted by our sin, our sin to interpret things on our own, our sin to twist Scripture to our own devices, our sin to uh, withhold uh, the gifts that God has given us from supporting our neighbor. But we're presented in verse 36 with Joseph. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. We get all this information about this guy, Barnabas. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It doesn't say he sold everything. It says he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, likely in response to some acute need. So that also shows you that they're not just emptying their bank accounts and giving it to the apostles. This is, you know, ad hoc as they need it. But this Barnabas guy, he's going to show up some more, isn't he, Pastor? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he's called the son of encouragement, or he's called the son of um, consolation. The word is a paraclete or paraclesis, paraclesios. Mm, uh, so, so he's, uh, and, and, and he is, uh, the commentators say he's like the first Levite that becomes a believer. Uh, of course, we don't know if that's, we, we don't know absolutely that that's true. Uh, we are told by Josephus that there was a, a sizable Jewish uh, community in Cyprus, or that there were many Jews that lived in Cyprus, which is where Barnabas came from. And uh, he's, Barnabas is like another Andrew because he brings people to Christ. He brought uh, uh, the apostle Paul after he became Paul, uh, Saul the persecutor, and then he became Paul the the apostle, you might say, using that expression. He brought uh, that gentleman to uh, the church in Jerusalem because they were all afraid of him. And then uh, at one other time, uh, between the first and second missionary journeys, and uh, like in chapter 14 and 15 of Acts, uh, he, he wants to bring his, uh, his nephew, uh, Mark, John Mark, with them uh, on the second missionary journey. And, Paul, and the apostle says, no, he, he left the work uh, in um, you know, Cilicia, and uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't want to take him. So uh, then, then, of course, you had the, the uh, uh, team of, of a gospel mission uh, separated, and they covered more ground then because uh, um, Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, where Barnabas uh, passed on and uh, later died. And then uh, Paul and Silas uh, were, went into uh, uh, Anatolia and, and, you know, Pisidia and, 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 and so on, and then to Europe. Well, we're going to see him more and more, and he's certainly held up here as the example of what it looks like to live out this sort of community share that they have going on. 
But then what happens next, I think, is told in contrast to faithful Barnabas or faithful Joseph, however you want to call him. Um, we meet uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And actually, I'm going to pause the action right there at the end of verse 4. It's the climax. But um, before we get to what happened next, I mean, most of us remember what happened next. But uh, he's bringing this, this money forward, and Peter makes it extremely clear. You could have done whatever you wanted with this. What was the lie that Ananias was telling? I mean, if he could have done what he wanted, what's the problem? Well, uh, as uh, Barnabas had done, uh, you know, he he contributed the entire amount. You know, so he was making a public declaration in the uh, assembly of Christians that um, this is uh, the entire amount I received from selling this property, and I I hear. In, by in the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, I bring, you know, I'm, I'm adding to this, right, right. you know, I'm bringing this publicly forward to uh, assist uh, the, those who are in need in our fellowship. And, and so that was, it was, it was kind of like a, a, a very uh, solemn promise. You know, it's kind of like, uh, it's interesting, uh, this, this practice has seemed to kind of fall by the wayside from years past, but they, there would be the practice of pledging in congregations, uh, in which uh, a person would would uh, set down how much uh, in the year they would uh, contribute to the Lord and put it in, uh, put it in an envelope and into a into a special box in 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 front of uh, in the midst of the congregation, and then and then you're you're kind of you you have what you give and then you have what you promise to give and so on. It, it, it's kind of like it, it seemed like that some kind of an exercise like that. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so in a, in a sense, uh, Barnabas was doing what the Holy Spirit was, uh, inducing him to do. But, um, and in the case of Ananias, uh, he was, he was, uh, fraudulently presenting himself, uh, which is like, uh, what he was, um, uh, belying the Holy Spirit. He was, right. he was, um, um, basically presenting, he was acting as if he was under the direction of the Spirit when actually he was under the direction of Satan. I mean, he could have, just as easy, and I think this is Peter's point, he could have just sold it and kept all the money. I mean, why even bring it up before the church? You wanted the money from it, just sell it, keep the money. But it sounds like Ananias wanted credit for being generous, credit for being faithful to the Holy Spirit, pledging it uh, all to, to God and to the community while at the same time keeping back. He could have gotten up there and pledged 50%, and there wouldn't have been a problem. The, the, the real problem here isn't that, and I think this is where the, the misunderstanding or even misinformation about this can go out there, it's not that he didn't sell everything he owns and give it all to the, to the, the, the apostles or he held back something and therefore he wasn't fully dedicated— 
but rather it's about his confession. It's about his intentions. I mean, if he just wanted the money for his field, he could have just sold it. It was his to do with what he wanted. And and uh, and and of course that that uh, in, in encourages or well it it uh, supports what we've saying that this is not communism, right? Um, and and uh, he was not forced into doing that. You were you were compl- a complete free agent uh, all throughout of this, whatever whatever you had here. It, it it's just he misrepresents the Holy Spirit uh, to say that it's okay for him to uh, to lie about what what he was uh, yeah. uh, donating to the Lord. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, that's, um, that's a serious thing. Obviously, um, uh, Peter, as uh, was, um, it was revealed to him, the fact that it was uh, a lie. Let's talk about pledging real quick, just for a minute. You brought it up. Now, a lot of congregations, I think, still do this. I think the ones for whom they have decided to move on I think it's because it just wasn't very useful. You know, when you, at the very beginning of the year or the end of the previous year, you pledge how much you're going to give, some congregations use that data to help them budget for the next year. But then if you don't keep your pledge, uh, then that doesn't mean anything. Or if you don't pledge, it doesn't mean as much. So if they're only getting 10% of the people pledging, then they can't do much with that information. Or even if 80% of the people pledged, but only 10% kept their pledge, it doesn't mean anything. I think that's why people have gone away from pledging. But assuming it's still going on in the listeners' congregation, or you know, let's just assume that we still had it everywhere, um, would that be an an analog to this? Would that be, you know, would would this be the sir this the text you would preach? <laughs> Maybe not you personally, but would it be appropriate to point to this text and say, you know, whatever you're pledging, this is why it's important that you're faithful. Pledge what you want even if it's zero, but be honest and faithful about it. Uh, can we make that connection? I, I think it's difficult to do that, especially if uh, in the case of, I think, a, a practice that I have seen, it, it, it's put in an envelope and it's just returned to the person. So mm-hmm. in other words, the, the practice is kind of seen between you and, and God, you know, what, what you are promising and, and so on, see, you know, then you deal with it as, as you, as you do, you know, some people will say, well, I, oh, I was, I'm sad. I didn't give as much as I wanted to. Uh, and, and the other, the other side is, oh, I gave even more than, than what I had pledged to the Lord. Um, but, uh, again, you know, we, we should remember that, that stewardship is not a matter of the law. Uh, you know, even as as uh, in in Second Corinthians, which is has a very good passage that deals with uh, stewardship, uh, where where they say it, it's always it's not to give of what you don't have, but what you have, and it and and God loves a cheerful giver, uh, you know. And as I said, with the pledge practice, it was I I don't think that anybody you know like the pastor or or the uh, finance committee or anybody opens up the pledges, but it's just it it's just something that's uh, they want to try to say it's a sort of a sacred thing to do with, with God. I, but well, perhaps I will say that I do know for a fact that both of those styles exist, one whereby they use the pledges to determine budgets and one whereby it's sort of like this, well, it's just between you and God. Um, I've seen that in action in both places as a circuit visitor and as a pastor. So I do know that both sort of methods exist, but I, as we already talked about, both methods are going by the wayside. People just aren't really doing it at all anymore. 
Maybe it's in fear of doing something like uh, Ananias and Sapphira did. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. I, if your pastor is getting up there preaching on what happens to Ananias uh, for Pledge Week, then um, I don't know. Beware. Beware. But let's see what happens to Ananias. <laughs> Verse five. When Ananias heard these words from Peter, he fell down and he breathed his last. And then great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So just pausing there after a couple more verses. So he dies. He drops dead, literally. Um, and it says, fear came upon all who heard it. You know, you talk about giving not being um, a product of the law or really shouldn't be a product of the law. I, I, I think this is one reason why. Would that great fear cause people to want to bring forward gifts or to not? I think if I saw that, I'd be like, I, I'm not going to give anything because then I won't be wrong. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think that God wants to motivate giving by the law. There's a different message here. Oh, absolutely. And, and in this particular case, you know, there's many different interpretations of this. Uh, some have said, well, uh, it, it scared him so, so much that uh, Peter had, had found him out. Uh, and, and then they, it, it says that, that Ananias was totally speechless. Uh, and uh, he, um, uh, you know, he probably had a heart failure or something like that that, that happened. Um, and, and there's other interpretations, especially among uh, the Calvinists who say that, uh, you know, if, if Ananias and Sapphira were, were uh, true believers, if they were some of God's elect, that God uh, ended their lives so that they could not fall away from the faith. You know, different, different interpretations of this. It, it, it just so happened that he died. It doesn't say that the Lord uh, ended his life. Uh, that, of course, in a general way is true, of course. Uh, because our times are in his hands. Uh, when, when, when we die, uh, he allows it to happen. Uh, you know, of course, in some case in the Old Testament, as it does, you know, he flicks that uh, in this. But in this particular case, uh, you know, we see it's, it's the lying, it's the hypocrisy that's the problem. Well, and he's not the only one involved. Let's pick up the rest of the verses here, starting with verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down his feet, and she breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Okay, so that, that ends the section. Actually, it ends our text for this morning. But So three hours later, by the way, what stands out to me, and this is not related, I think, to the meaning of the text, but um, they buried this guy quick. <laughs> I mean, he drops dead. They bury him within three hours. They didn't even let his wife know. Um, I just think that's an odd uh, action from them. Maybe they buried them. Maybe they buried him out of fear. I don't know why they buried him so quickly. I, I don't think that was a common practice, especially without letting the widow know. But anyway, he, she comes in and Peter tests her too. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It, it it's it's kind of unusual. Of course, in in um, it, it in Palestine in 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 the, in the Holy Land at that time. Uh, they didn't embalm bodies. Uh, the Egyptians did, of course, but not uh, the, not them. And so, when, in, in those days where it's hot and everything, you, you don't leave dead bodies lying around 
<laughs> too often uh, you 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 are to you know bury them as soon as possible and in fact i think even in judaism it is it is required that a person be buried the very same day that they die or you know or or if it's if they die at night then they are to be buried in the morning uh so so in this case um uh basically they did what their practice was well it makes sense for sure and um so then they bring her in though and peter basically um interrogates her he doesn't tell her that her husband has died he doesn't tell her that her husband has lied he um I, I don't know i guess a very uncharitable way to read it would be that he's kind of tempting her putting her to the test how do you see peter's actions here yeah i i think it's kind of like the church is is the final tribunal um you know in, in terms of uh, we're talking about excommunication uh you know tell it to the church uh, you know in a sense they're they're trying to determine uh what's going on here um they it, it, the testing of the holy spirit is you know as a lot of people probably do is well if god lets me get by with this then i can do even more uh sins of course that's only the thoughts of an unbeliever sure um you know so in in a sense uh ananias and sapphira were were tempting god to say well we can get away with this nobody's going to know how much money we got the field for and and you know they don't they don't know one way or the other but guess what the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter. Uh, so in this case, it, it's kind of uh, like a um, a tribunal, uh, you know, in, in a sense of, of uh, you know, as the church would go on, there there would be a, a situation even where the Apostle Paul says, you know, you've got this fellow that's married to his stepmother. You know, you need to put him under discipline. And, um, and, and so in this case, uh, she was being put under discipline. Well, and her actions in general are really challenging the reputation of the believers. You know, I talked at the very beginning of our study this morning that the believers are, in a way, very isolated. They're Ronins, right? They're, they're people without a country. They're a religion without a headquarters. They're, they're, uh, they, they, their rabbi has ascended. They're trying to make their way in this world, and they're pretty lonely doing it. Um, so there's already tons of rumors that are going around about the believers. We know from early Christian documents that early Christians were accused of being cannibals. Early Christians were accused of drowning children. Um, both of those things point to our great sacraments, so we love it when the unbelievers even attest to our beliefs, even if they do it in an incorrect way. But the point is, they don't need more rumors about who they are, because make no mistake, the Jews of the time, the pagans of the time, the Romans, the secular folks, they would have seen the Christians as this weird little cult. And so if it's getting out that they're also, you know, got people who are being greedy and the reputation is that they're just a bunch of unscrupulous people that you can't trust, that's going to hinder the gospel. So this is more serious than just, well, the church didn't get the whole cut of the land. Peter makes it clear that that had nothing to do with any of it. But whether it's Sapphira or whether it is Ananias, the way they're acting is challenging the represent, uh, sorry, the reputation of the of the Christians, and that's a big deal when you're trying to spread the message. Oh, exactly, and and that's why, uh, you know, in the scriptures, it 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 it's incumbent upon us, who of course are ministers called ministers of Christ, uh, that we uh, that the that we 
live exemplary lives so that the ministry be not blamed, uh, that the word be not blamed. You know, it's it's kind of like a situation where in, in even in ancient Israel, where, um, you know, the, the, the people were so terribly sinful. And then and then uh, it, it kind of like if God, uh, you know, punished them or, you know, disciplined them, uh, then then it was, uh, you know, they'd say, well, he is an evil God because he with evil intent, he brought him out into the wilderness and so on and, and killing them and whatever. Uh, it, it, it's so that we bring we always by the grace of God must bring honor to God and his especially to his precious gospel, which is the only way of salvation. As we look over this whole scenario of the Christians having everything in common, and Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, pardon me, and also Barnabas and the way he acted in contrast to the way that Ananias and Sapphira acted, you know, what's the application for today? You know, we've talked about pledging, we've talked about giving, we've talked about being in community and helping out the poor. Um, is there some part of this that perhaps we've not really taken a hold of like we should have? Is there some way the church can look at this and say, you know what, there's some things we might need to change. I mean, yeah, it's not prescriptive, but maybe they had a better way. I don't know. Do you see any of that in this text? Well, I, I think that uh, over the centuries that the gospel and the word of God has has formed the church as, as, the, as the Lord would want to have it. Um, you know, as as the um, assembly of believers, uh, you know, in other words, and also the holy, the office of the holy ministry, uh, where where there is no hierarchy. I mean, the biblical understanding is that all pastors, by divine right, are equal, and and that uh, any any kind of order, of course, is something that is of by human uh, uh, by human law or human principle. Um, and in this particular case, I think it, it's about being authentically uh, in Christ. And, and uh, when, when people commit sins, uh, you know, which are sort of like, a, uh, you know, the symptom of, uh, you know, the, the original sin or the sinful nature that we have within us. And when they are deliberately sinning and, 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 and you know, going against their conscience, uh, then, then at those times... Um, uh, you know that that should be brought to their attention. So I, I think it's going along as as the Lord would have it in the way we have our church. Well, and we certainly want to try to do as the Lord would have us do. I, I, what I see in this text, though, too, though, is that people need to be reminded the sin of Ananias, and and to uh, the same extent or lesser extent, maybe a little bit, his wife Sapphira. He wanted glory on earth. He wanted the other Christians to look at him and see how faithful he was, as opposed to Barnabas or Joseph, who's just giving because the Lord's leading him to give. Ananias wanted credit. He wanted to get the credit. He also wanted some of the cash. Um, it's sort of the old story, you know, but at the same time, Ananias is wanting to be admired by the people. He's wanting to put the focus on himself as opposed to Jesus. And in my history as a pastor, I've run into parishioners who want to throw around the fact that they give the most or volunteer the most, and you have to be careful with that attitude because that's not why God has called you together. The whole point here, and as you spoke, is, e is equality amongst one another. We're all equal before God, all equally saved, we all have access to the same salvation, and whether we have different gifts here on earth or not, 
we still use them for one another without looking for reward in return. So yeah, I can I can see how the church could still learn from this, although I certainly agree with you that the Lord preserves his church uh, as history goes on. I, yeah, I think you're completely correct here. And and uh it's uh in the case of uh, a case of Ananias, uh you know, it, it it again, the apostle Paul says there is a new creation. Uh like he says uh, when when they demand uh circumcision, he says that doesn't matter. Or, or uh, you know, what you eat, you know, with a dietary rules or anything like that, but a new creation. And, and uh, the fact that through holy baptism, God uh, re- uh, regenerates us, the Holy Spirit, uh, who is the one who is active in holy baptism, regenerates us to become believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what counts. That's what's important here. And, and, and when anybody demonstrates uh, this type of... Um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, falling away from the faith or maybe not being in the faith at all due to their own uh, hardness of heart, uh, then then that's something that needs to be made manifest and for, maybe for their repentance. You know, with that's the idea behind Christian discipline. That's right. We're all just poor, miserable sinners. <laughs> and we come together, we receive the gifts of the Lord because that's what it that's what it's ultimately about. You see these pictures of, you know, rich man, poor man, but look at the size of their graves. They're the same size. Well, you know, Christians don't look at it necessarily like that. Christians look at it like this. We all have access to the same glories of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And if our eternal life begins now, after baptism, then that means we are all equal, co-reigning with Christ, uh, beginning really now and into the, into, the, uh, into the next life, or actually really this life that continues. But for those who are outside the faith, our proclamation, our even our reputation, although we can't control what other people say, we can certainly control within the household of God our actions and how we respond to sinful reactions um, so that the world knows that we are, and as the word you use several times, that we are authentically Christians. We, are, we want to be a part of this faith because of the grace and faith that God has given us, not not because um, we're trying to, I guess, get some power for ourselves by using the church, and that applies whether you're a pastor, a parishioner, or whatever. Yeah, that's. I, I really uh, like the fact that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, says that the relationship of Christians uh, to their pastor always goes through Christ. It's not a a a like a direct relationship like uh, Jim Jones or some cult leader would have. It, it's always a relationship that, that is, uh, comes from, uh, you know, to Christ and from Christ. And, and, it, and, that's, and that's so vital in, uh, to understand what's going on as the Christian church. Uh, you know, and this is something that the Apostle Paul was mentioning too about the fact that uh, the, the Old Testament faith uh, you know, which which was, of course, continue a part of it, which was continued in Judaism of today, is is uh, was mediated through angels and so on. But we have uh, the Son of God Himself, God Himself, who has come into the flesh and has spoken, uh, you know, authoritatively from the Father, and and so we are are gathered around the true God, uh, who is with us as we gather in His name. Well, and that's the focus, folks. We gather around in God's name, receive his gifts, 
And, of course, we share what we have with those who are in need. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor, as always, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been such a joy. God bless you. Folks, on Monday when we come back, we're going to finish up chapter 5 and dip just a little bit into chapter 6. St. Luke is going to highlight the extraordinary miracles performed by the apostles and the dramatic growth of the church amid even all the opposition that we've been talking about. Yet, as the church expands, there are internal conflicts, such as how to care for widows within the community. So the Apostles' response, which involves the appointment of seven men filled with the Holy Spirit, well, it sets the stage for how we understand church leadership even today. So you don't want to miss that. Join us on Monday as we talk about chapters 5 and 6. And until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.